crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humble brags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, all one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. I'm Matt Georges, and in this episode, I'm talking to Tom Saunders, a man who seems to have done every job possible before becoming a successful publisher of hobby magazines. I have to say, it was a real joy talking to Tom. He's got a magnificently positive outlook on life, and even better than that, it seems that his sunny disposition has helped his career at every step as well. You'll quickly start to spot a pattern in Tom's career story. As each one of his numerous job interviews comes along, the person interviewing him says, you don't know anything about the job, but you've got a great attitude, you're good with people, you're hired. Now, I'm not suggesting we should all turn up for the interview for the next head of the Bank of England with a cheery smile and a promise to get our heads around the detail later, but but what Tom has taught me is that far from being a barrier to a good career or, or a sign of weakness, having fun, being friendly and helping people out can take you a long way. We all still need skills, of course, and Tom has plenty of those, but his give-it-a-go attitude elevates those skills, in my view, to the next level. Okay, housekeeping. No trigger warnings this time round, and only a couple of swearies, both from me, apologies for that. Uh, So it's all pretty simple. Okay, we're ready to go. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup. My name's Tom Saunders, and I own and uh, run a publishing company called Silverback Publishing Limited, which owns four consumer monthly magazines. Where did you grow up then, Tom? Croydon. So I was okay. born in Croydon, lived in Old Town for about probably the first seven, eight years of my life. Yeah. And then my, my grandparents lived around Elmer's End and Bromley Way. So yeah, then we moved to South Norwoods for the rest of my life and, and I went to school called Ashburton in Shirley. Dragged up, uh, I think is the best way to say it. But no, we <laughs> I had a good child, if I'm honest. I look back at it and I think, yeah, it was all right. It was a pretty decent area when I was younger. I, I think Croydon's a bit rough nowadays but it was a cool place i had a, a, a good bunch of friends around me at home and at school and yeah good times good times you went to school and then what age did you leave where did you go so i was uh, quite good at school i actually went to school i didn't i didn't never bump top <laughs> but ashburn really wasn't known for its academic abilities i mean don't think any of my friends went to uni and it was never encouraged at my school. It was always like you were going to go and do a manual job. You know, you were going to go and work in a, in a trades of some sort. A friend of mine at school, her dad happened to run a, a welding firm, sort of West Norwood way. And it, he just one day said to me, oh, would you like to come and work for me? Be trained to become a welder. And I was like, okay, what else am I going to do? You know, I did my exams and stuff. 
and did okay, but I didn't really study. I didn't, I mean, all the school reports, my mum always makes me laugh. She goes, you know, if only he tried harder, he could achieve a lot more. And I don't think I was lazy. I was just, there was no one there to really inspire you to do anything. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was hanging around with my mates, playing football. We would go to Croydon and do the usual stuff that young lads do, kick about, listen to music. Music was very big for me when I was younger. But other than that, there was no focus on a general trade. So the welding opportunity, trainee welder, just kind of made sense. It was a regular job, quite well paid. And that lasted for a couple of years. And unfortunately, the business sort of had to be wound up. So that was 85 to 87. And the last uh, sort of five years of the 80s, the building industry was on its knees. It was very, very hard to get work. My granddad, uh, my dad's side, my namesake, fun enough, another Thomas Saunders, he was a master plumber and he left all these tools. He passed away, sadly, a few years before, prior to me leaving school. And it kind of dawned on me that maybe I should take that up. You know, he, he'd done well. He had all these tools. So I started to study at Carl Shorten College plumbing back then at City and Guilds. I don't think it's called that now. But anyway, did two years of City and Guilds plumbing with the hope of becoming a, a, a plumber. But you couldn't get any apprenticeships back then. There was very few opportunities in the building industry to do that. For some reason, I don't even know how I found this job, but somebody said, oh, there's a job at Do It All. And Do It All were a DIY, a bit like B&Q. They're, not, they're no longer around, part of the WH Smith chain, but Do It All were like a big DIY shop on Pearly Way. We're looking for a central heating manager. So... I just chanced my luck. I went along and went for an interview and they said, yeah, you got the job. When can you start? So I started, strangely, went from building industry into retail all of a sudden, pretty much overnight. That was a big change. That was 1988. So yeah, was there for a few years and uh, did that for quite a while. It feels like a different skill set to me that you go from, as you say, from a building trade which obviously you're dealing with customers there, but that's a small element of what you do. But in retail, that's like everything you do. That's a bit of a mental shift, right? Well, it, it, it was a strange role because I was basically told to take responsibility as a manager. I mean, no management training whatsoever. <laughs> but the only reason they took me on is because I'd done two years sitting gills plumbing, and they just assumed that I knew everything about uh, heating and plumbing. Well, I kind of knew a bit, but... Yeah, and as you say, I mean, there's a like initiation training which lasted about a day, and it was very much there. You go, there's your area in the shop, you run it. Kind of had to think of my feet pretty quick. And customer skills, well, I had no training as such, but I mean, use common sense. You just be polite to people. That's kind of how I assumed retail worked, right? It was fun. I mean, we were, I was quite young, and the, the team around me, there were various other managers on different departments in the in the shop we all helped each other out and that kind of that did help but uh yeah it was a strange move if i'm honest to this day i can't quite explain why i did it but i did and it kind of set my career path along the retail route really i ended up working for dixon's after that which is now the curry's group everyone knows curry's mm-hmm. was there quite for, for some years back then retail was very much like you were, were involved with everything like stop take product development, how to actually display products. 
obviously engaging with customers, dealing with complaints, looking at how you refund people, and all sorts of things. Even to the down, even down to security. You know, not very often, but every now and then, that we someone would come in and try and steal something, and we were told to you've got to go and chase this guy across the Whitgift Centre in Croydon. So the role was everything. And if the manager was off, then you might have to step into his shoes for um, a day or two while they try to find a supervisor or cover someone to cover so i learned quite a lot in retail i have to say particularly how to deal with people because no two customers are alike no two people are alike one that walks in has a different expectation on what the service should be from say an electrical retail shop for instance so it did give me a bit of a an eye opener on how to deal with people there's an awful lot of stuff written about customer service, and I always thought it just boils down to just be polite. You could write it in one line, but actually, from what you're saying, there's probably a bit more to it than that, and maybe being a bit facetious. I look back at some of the training, and um, I think a lot of it's common sense. It is. I mean, I, I guess my dad's always said to me, you know, always treat someone the way you'd like to be treated, and that, and that is, it's just such an easy piece of advice. It's so true. Having said that, there are some people that are quite awkward, and they just they come in and no matter what you do, they're just never going to be happy with the service. Now, that could be down to something that's happened in the past with the business they've dealt with that you're working for. It could be just a general, they've just totally got out the wrong side of the bed. No two days in retail was ever the same. And it was hard work. You had to kind of think in your feet because you relax. Someone would always surprise you with uh, either complaint or they'd come in and really kick off. I mean, we had some very angry customers in Croydon at sometimes. <laughs> what I have learned from that is never expect people to behave the way you think they're going to behave because they don't. Retail was fun. We had its challenges, but it was good fun. I spent a lot of time when I was younger working in my local pub. And it was oh, that's um, good grounding, great grounding, it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Just yeah, and and we did food mostly. So I was like worked behind the bar, worked in the kitchen, worked in and the tables and stuff and it's just as you say that i'm thinking maybe like 95 percent of the customers were nice as pie and i reckon the five percent who weren't i spent like half my time with a bit like a teacher with like one unruly kid in the class it's just sucks your time and energy because yeah you just can't do it right and it feels like those things snowball somebody comes in and says oh um the machine for, I don't know, <laughs> heating up the spuds isn't working. And then the angry customer orders jacket potatoes, and you're just like, of course you did. Of course yeah. you did, because that's just this you snowball knew. effect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Somehow you knew. I don't know how you feel about it, but my feeling from that was actually I kind of wanted to withdraw from that a bit. I, I didn't like the fact that if somebody was shitty to me, it really affected my day. And more often than not, there would be one person who was shitty. And I would remember that person instead of all the people who were really nice and really pleasant. I don't know. It sounds like you were a bit more resilient than me, maybe. I don't know what it is about me, but I don't let things really get to me like that. I'd be angry for maybe five or ten. If they really got my back up, I might stomp around a little bit. I don't know, but... I don't let it get to me because at the end of the day, I mean, nine times out of 10, you'd never come across those customers again. They drop their bomb of disappointment and, and then they disappear. Funny enough, I did some pub work as well. And so I can, I can definitely appreciate where you're coming from. The t- difference between someone coming into a retail environment and a pub is invariably they're sober compared to alcohol, which sometimes either elevates the problem or, as you say, most of the customers were decent. But I never get one woman 
I worked at a harvester in Surbiton years ago. I, was, I had another job after Dixon's. I went into cr- recruitment. I went for Reed. But anyway, I had a little part-time job in between that, working at the harvester. And this lady, I never forget, I never to this day will never forget her. Um, and she came and moaned and complained about everything. Didn't have enough peas on the plate, so I bought her more peas. Still didn't have enough peas on the plate, so I bought her <laughs> more peas. And it was just everything we did was just the fork was dirty, the spoon was dirty, the, the saucer wasn't quite right. And I was like, this is, you know, and I was really polite. And she was quite, I say aggressive is not right, but it's very like, you know, really kind of, mm. and I was like, she's not going to pay for a bill. I just had this sense. She's not, anyway, to my complete surprise, no, should she pay for a bill? This must be 1988, 89. She gave me a 10 pound tip. Wow. So after all of that moaning and complaining, you know what? You never know. You just never know. And I, I remember thinking, I will never forget that to, to, you know, to the day I die. It was just one of those awkward, really awkward customers that I did not expect for one second words, let alone reward me, even pay for a bill. So, um, yeah, very, very surprised. So people can surprise you. And she said thank you as well after all that moaning and everything. And I think maybe it was an element of not biting back, being polite, I don't know, maybe calm her down. I'm not saying that happened all the time, but yeah, yeah. people are people. Uh, you know, as I said, one thing I've learned all these years is you can't be responsible for the way people behave. You you, you expect them to behave in a certain way, and, and if they lose the plot or are nasty towards you. And the other thing is when you're, as you know, when you're in the pub and when you're working in retail, I mean, I had sort of regular customers coming into some of the bars. Funny enough, I worked at a social club over in South North. My dad had a club he went to. And I got a little part-time job there. And this guy's come in all the time and he'd, he'd moan quite a bit. And he didn't really look at me. And I know this for a fact because I'd walk past him in the high street and I'd say hello and he didn't recognise me. But he knew who I was behind the bar but didn't recognise me this side of the bar. I think people just moan at something but don't really recognise the person they're talking to. Yeah, I take it very personally, stuff like this. I, I'm better now, but... I did take it quite personally. As you say, you know, there were locals in our pub and, and basically their job was moaning. You know, there was always something <laughs> yeah. wrong. Thinking back on it, you know, I should have just taken the piss out of them a bit and kind of got a bit yeah. of rapport going that way. But when you're 16, 17, no, you don't well, really think, think like that, do you? No, no, absolutely not. No, if anything, you think, it's quite intimidating, actually. And that's yeah. quite an age to be working in a pub. You know, there's some right characters, as you know, in public bars nowadays and pubs. Strangely enough, it's weird how I kind of think I'm one of them. You know, as I got older and I go to the pub, I'm now the, one of the characters that it's, yeah, it's a young age and it's quite hard to try and make your stamp of authority at 16 years of age in front of mm. a road of 40, 50, 60 year old blokes, women, whatever it is. You know, that's not, that's not easy to do. I should say for the record that I wasn't serving drinks at that age, just in case. <laughs> So you had some time in retail. So you switched again into recruitment. What happened there? I think I got bored of uh, working for Dixon's and I got kind of fed up in retail. I've done that probably about four or five years. But I like selling. I like dealing with people. Back then we had a paper called Loot. Don't get it anymore. But in Loot was like jobs and they used to sell like, it'd be like eBay in print pretty much, but they also had a job section. And it came up in Wimbledon. There was a company looking for a recruitment consultant. And I just thought, oh, why not? Let's have a go. So I applied, not expecting anything, and I kind of got the job. And they were trying to launch a, an industrial and driver's section, 
which predominantly Wynwood is mainly known for office and catering, but there's a lot of estates around there. And they, and I never get the manageress, uh, Wendy Barrett, her name was lovely lady. She said, clearly you've got no recruitment experience, but you seem to get on well with people and your rapport's good, quite chatty. I had a gift of the gab, suppose, so I guess. But she's probably the very first person that taught me actually sales is about that listening and not that. And um, for the listener, Tony, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, has pointed to his ear. So it's about that listening, but it, and then he pointed to his mouth. <laughs> it's not about talking. Less gob, so to speak, as she, she used to put it, and more listening. And yeah, read recruitment. So I joined them and we started a little department within that supplying drivers to companies like Royal Mail, Parcel Force, packers for warehouses, stuff like that, industrial forklift drivers. And it was a busy time. Um, this is a before the days of computers, we didn't have laptops or PCs on your desk. It was all name cards and lots of admin work. But it was a very busy little office and built that up quite successfully to the point they thought, ah, oh, he's, he's done so well. Let's move into London Bridge. But there's hardly any industrial states in London Bridge or around the area. Lots of yeah. offices. So that didn't go down too well. And it, I, again, I, I think I kind of did the job and work for one of the managers really well. The second manager at the other office at London Bridge I went to work for wasn't really interested in me. Having, one didn't really want me there, didn't believe that we could even develop a, an industrial driving section. So it was on to, off to a non-starter, really, and I, I kind of wasted probably nine months of my life, if I'm honest, at uh, London Bridge. But again, I, you know, it, I got to work in the city for the first time, and that was quite a novelty. Going up by train every day into town, suited and booted. The buzz mm. around London Bridge was brilliant. I loved all of that. And they suddenly realised after about seven, eight months, look, it's not working. Well, we'll try Victoria, which again was crazy because there's there's no, there's no real industrial states around Victoria. And uh, I was like, really? And I was too young. Okay, it goes back to your your earlier comment about I was quite young still, you know, and then wasn't really vocal about, didn't say no, let's just, that, that is, that's not going to work. Why are we doing this? And mm. was listening to the hierarchy, so to speak, going, well, you you must. Okay, you're paying my wages, or I'll do as I'm told. Again, didn't hit any targets. It just, there was no manager at Victoria. So I was probably not focused enough. I 50 50 of not having the right management helping me develop an area, also not recognising there was no way you could develop the service that they were trying to provide in that particular area of Victoria. But also, I guess I'd sort of become very disenchanted with the whole idea of working in recruitment, working for Reed in particular. And at the time, I'd made good friends with a guy called Martin Cook, who was the manager at Parcel Force. And I was just happened to be chatting to him one day. I rung him out of the blue and he, he said, look, I've got a job. Do you fancy come and work for me? And I said, well, what is it? And he said, transport manager. So I went, well, I know nothing about transport managers. He said, it's easy. Just come along. And, and... <laughs> well, so I started got... to detect a bit of a running theme here. <laughs> yeah, really. it was a lot of, I did a lot of that. Yeah, it was almost like, yeah, I mean, the drivers were really miffed because someone had gone for the job who'd been working at Parcel Force for many years, didn't get it, and he gave the job to me. And what do I know about They didn't know me. I hadn't been a driver. But, yeah, so started, did working for Parcel Force in, crikey, 1993, and loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was a really good job. 
the guys soon warmed to me and it all kind of, you know, it, it wasn't just me in the office. It was a couple of transport managers as well. But yeah, it was a really good job. It was easy. I didn't have to think about what I had to wear because you had a uniform supplied. You knew exactly what hours you're doing. Any extra hours you did was overtime. It was a very simple job. And I liked I liked it. The, the, there was a bit of camaraderie going on as well. You know, the group of lads that had come in, there was about 30, 40 drivers on a morning shift and about half that for the afternoon shift. Yeah, it was a really, really good job. And I was running the transport department for about two years. And then we'd often have drivers go sick or holidays and they wouldn't be able to recruit someone to replace them. So I'd go out and do a, a round or something for a day or two. When I first started at Parcel Force, I will never forget the very first day, the union rep, lovely bloke, came up to me and went, um, you know you've got your holidays. I went, yeah, 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 and like four weeks or whatever it was a year. And he went, oh, there's two more weeks you've got to take sick. And I said, well, what do you mean what? by that? And he went, he said, well, you, you've got to take two weeks sick. I went, well, not even, even if I'm not sick. He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and what I realised, and this is a bit of a shame really, but, Basically, you were forced to, we weren't forced, but you, you were shunned if you didn't do it. But the, the overtime was generated, of course, by other drivers covering other drivers' routes, right? And shifts. And if this was in the canteen, there was this other calendar, sick calendar, where effectively you would take a couple of days sick and the driver would cover your shift. You generate overtime. So that's how they generate, generated more income for themselves. Everyone went sick, even if they weren't sick. So you could, go and do someone else's shift and generate. And back then, overtime was like double time or time and a half. So quite a bit of money. You know, you could really top your money up. And every year, parcel force would be in the news, we're losing money. And I was like, wonder why they're losing money. You know, it's uh, it was a very strange time. But yeah, the union really had a big grip on the way the business was run back then. I look back and think, okay, it was good that it protected people's jobs and stuff. I get that. Mm. But at the same time, there was definitely a little bit of skullduggery going on in how to generate more income. And I was there for a good seven, eight years, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. But the job got harder and harder. They started to bring in time and motion study people that sit beside you when you went out and drove. And, you know, we started with very small routes, 35 drops, per shift which is not a lot to be fair you could do it in a couple of hours easily particularly if you did like a place like Causton you know most drivers would go out at nine o'clock be back by half eleven and they've done their shift you know and you're being paid for an eight hour day so again no wonder the month the company was losing money but by the time I'd left the target for drops was like 120 130 a day a lot of the old I call them the old boys but the original drivers I'd worked with that had been there way before me when it was getting hard, I didn't want to know. And the union were losing their control and power. And probably, to be fair, from a business point of view, that was bound to happen because you can't run a business like that. The losses were ridiculous. Mm. But, um, yeah, I got sort of a bit tired of it. They moved the depot a couple of times. The one good thing about it is I met my wife. I met my wife at Term Pass, of course, Simone. Oh, right. She came out of uni, got a job there, and that's where I met her. I, mean, I love the job, and, I, and I, I will never forget the fact that uh, I met my Simone there night when was that 1995 something like that so um yeah so I'm thankful for that in that respect but again time for a career change and roll forwards what am I going to do and I did loads of little jobs I was selling I was a milkman for a bit I sold advertising signs in post offices for a couple of weeks I sold I tried to sell photocopiers 
for what I did that for one day, I was like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, I had so many different, like, I tried just different things. And 97, so after Pass Force, I saw um, an advert for advertising sales manager at Link House in Croydon. Didn't know what magazine it was. I went for along for the interview and I never got it. Sorry, we've taken someone else on. So I was like, oh, damn, okay, I've got to find something else. And a week later, I got a phone call from Alan Morgan, who was the publisher. How you doing? I went, well, yeah, have you got a job? I said, well, I can't remember what I had, but I had got something lined up. And, oh, don't do that. Come and work for us. I said, well, you you got someone else. You didn't give me the job. And he was like, um, they never turned up. Can you start a day sort of thing? <laughs> so, oh, so I'm next best, am I? Like that. And so uh, we negotiated. I said, well, I want more money, blah, blah, blah. And so they gave me a little bit more. And that was my start in publishing, which... I absolutely love. I still to this day get a massive buzz from it. It gave me the groundings and I guess that long last I'd find I found something I really enjoyed doing. We worked on a magazine called Car and Car Conversions at Link House and we were on the top floor. There's lots of magazines within that company. Uh, there was Superbike. There was Hare and Hounds or Horse and Hounds or whatever. <laughs> it was like, like there was a Hi-Fi Weekly. There's loads of magazines there. Mm. But our top floor was known as, oh, that's where all the degenerates go. You know, the naughty boys are up there sort of thing. And we had like the racing motorsport publications up there. We had Race Car Engineering and Rally Sport Magazine up there. And uh, brilliant. And we're all on the same floor. And I, met some, I, I worked with some really nice guys, really nice people. Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, sounds it. So the publishing thing, when was this? This was late 90s, have I got that right? 1997, I joined Link House and was there for two years, year and a half. Link House was quite a, they were big to be fair to me, but they were, in the world of publishing, they were quite a small independent publishing company. And there was a bigger publishing company called IPC in London that were, I didn't realise when I joined, were in the process of acquiring Link House and all the titles. There was a lot of disgruntlement when it happened. I mean, I was sort of new, so it didn't really affect me. But a lot of people that have been working at Link House for many, many years saw this big corporate beast come in and kind of they they did they changed things. They were they you know they were running things for profit. That's how they you know run a business. I mean, Link House was being run for profit. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of the titles at Link House are quite hobby magazine. They were hobby type titles. And IPC were like, all they're interested in was the numbers. They want to know mm. what can we make from this. And um, it was weird. Uh, i never forget, we were on the top floor. The, the floor below, Superbike Magazine was an IPC title, and they moved them to Link House from Kingsreach Tower, which is this beautiful build. I don't think it's still there, I'm not sure, but in London and the South Bank. Beautiful, tall building. You know, it overlooks big skyline, et cetera. Like, a brilliant place. And, of course, the staff at Superbike were not happy coming into this big old building behind orders in Croydon. I don't think they were happy about coming to Croydon, let alone into the building. But um, we didn't have things like air conditioner computers back then, nothing like that. And they moved into this sort of grey, big room. And it was I can kind of understand it looking back. They were very disgruntled about the idea of being there. So there was kind of big demands made from them. We want air conditioning, we want computers. But, of course, that everyone else's nose out of joint in the building because we're like well we haven't got that why have you got it yeah a lot of really unhappy staff at link house once ipc had taken out to the point i never get the director of ipc she invited a select few of us up to air our grievances and they put me forward as the guy to go and do it because 
when I was at Parcel Force, everyone knew I'd actually become a union rep and just assumed that I'd be able to, I don't know, do some deal with the director of IPC. And uh, they didn't care. They, if I'm honest, we sat in this big boardroom, massive table, as you can imagine. There was quite a few of us around the table from various departments at Linkhouse. And they gave us about two minutes each to talk. It was like nothing. Mm-hmm. And then just turned and said, well, this is the bottom line. These are all the targets you've got to hit. Don't even understand why we went, if I'm honest, because they didn't listen to one thing we said but the targets went up and at the time i was selling advertising space on car and car conversions which i loved i loved the magazine i loved all the shows we went to you know we whisked off to the nec at auto sport every year and we'd meet all the big stars claim to fame i had jensen button sit at my desk before he was famous why was he sat on your desk there Tom? well yeah it's an interesting <laughs> one um the guys that worked on the magazine nick hall was a good friend of mine he was a writer he kept banging on about this guy jensen button he's going to be the next big thing and we're like yeah whatever nick like you know whatever he was his best mate and they knew each other for quite some time and at the time i think jensen was racing in formula 3000 it was like two leagues down or whatever it was from formula one and he just happened to come around one day to pick nick up and he came into the office and again he was like look this is jensen and jensen sat on the desk beside was chatting away to him nice bloke you know nice young lad no idea who he, said, who he ended up to be, but uh, he mm. was a nice guy, I have to say. But going back to Linkhouse, I decided enough was enough. It was getting silly targets, went through the roof. You were trying to achieve advertising revenue that was just not achievable, you know, even when things were going well. And it, it was clear to us they were going to cull a few titles. So I, I thought, started looking around and then thought I'd get a proper job. So I decided to go and work for Reed Elsevier, Quadrant House in Sutton. And they had a magazine called IBM Today, which is about servers. I know nothing about any of that, but I got the job. And it was interesting. We went from selling 500-pound page ads to 10-grand page ads to people like Hewlett-Packard and you know CompuServe, things like that. It was an incredibly different sleep into what I call the proper professional corporate world. And meeting the buyers at Hewlett-Packard was always an interesting day out because they want to be wined and dined. And, you know, it was just silly, really. You weren't really selling. You were just taking people out for meals and posh, wanky restaurants. And they'd go, yeah, there you go. I'll I'll sign off 10 grand for an advert in your magazine. It was just a, a very small readership of IT directors. And yet people would spend more in advertising to reach those readers it was quite quite bizarre for me to initially yeah i did that for quite some time and i kind of don't know for me i love the idea of being part of something that was created like for car and car conversions on rally sport magazines the two magazines i worked on i remember being part of the whole creative part you know development of it and i made some really good friends with some of the advertisers who to this day are good mates actually really good friends who i've talked to quite often who listened to me. And it's a, I think it was the first time I got into a role or job that went, he knows what he's talking about. And I'll give you an example. There's a chap called Dave Elderfield who runs a business called Rally Design, and they supplied motorsport components to the motorsport industry, and particularly the Ford market, like classic Fords and stuff. And my first couple of weeks at car and car conversions, he rung me up and said, my mad's not working. Well, you know, it's just like, I, need, I don't want to pull it. And I'm like, bloody, I've just started. And I've already lost a client. And I kind of said to him, well, looking at your ad, with respect, car and car conversions goes to people that are quite serious about doing their cars up. This is not Max Power. Now, Max Power was a a competitive title, but was aimed at fast, 
road cars and you had dolly birds all over the magazine. You know, there was like, it was a really, it was a, they always say 80, 90% of the readership were underage, but bought it for the the ladies with the, the assets out, so to speak. And that wasn't car and car conversions. C Triple C, as it was known, was about tuning your car on your driveway, going to motorsport meets, upgrading your car to go and compete on track days or grassroots level motorsport. So it was a serious guy, you know, a serious hands-on magazine. And I said today, well, your advert's got all these dolly birds over it with respect to females that are on these adverts. And you can't see what you sell. Like <laughs> So... And I said, you do all these parts, but you can't see it. You can't see them. And this is the way before the internet was really prevalent. And um, oh, I'll change it. So he changes that overnight, and his sales went through the roof. And so he always sort of champions me from that day of speaking out. And he said, you're the first person that's ever told me I've done something wrong. And he's quite an authoritative figure, and he run his business the way he run his business. And not very few people could tell him what to do. But he said, the fact that you told me I was doing wrong, it's all suddenly dawned on me. And we, since then, we became good mates. He's the reason I ended up running and starting the e-bike business in Hampton Wick. Help me out. This is the e-bike business. What's going on now? I still stayed in publishing. And that particular guy, Dave Elderfield, owned this big warehouse down in uh, Whistable, Tankerton, and kept in touch with him on and off for years. I'd left Reed Elsevier. I took on a magazine called Kit Car Magazine which was back to where I was with the motorsport title, so to speak. But Kit Car was more about building Caterham 7, stuff like that, on your driveway. And we dealt with like 220 manufacturers. Anyway, kept in touch with David Elderfield at Rally Design because he supplied a lot of components. And he didn't realise we had a lot of components that you could use to help build a kit car. So anyway, one day he comes back from China, which he'd visit annually because he had loads of the parts for cars made out there and then shipped in containers. He came back, rang me up come and see me okay so I went down to see him and he showed me this electric bicycle what do you think I said yeah it's brilliant I said but who are you going to sell it to you're in the middle of nowhere and he went yeah well we'll put them online and yeah, yeah good point and at the time because I was working for the guy that owned kit car magazine I got the opportunity to, to buy kit car magazine and start my own publishing business this is 2012 and Dave rung me up after I've been to see him and said you need an office, didn't you? I went, well, yeah, I could do with one, really, assuming I needed an office. But, yeah, I tell you what, why don't you sell the e-bikes? I'll set you up an office, but well, it'd be like a shop, and you sell the e-bikes in London. I went, yeah, okay, why not? I knew nothing about cycling or, or e-bikes, but it seemed like a good idea, and I was going to get an office out of it. And it, I like Dave. He, you know, he's very straight. So we cut a deal. We looked for some premises. And two shops came up for sale in Hampton Wick High Street, opposite the Swan. Yeah, so we, we started in 2013. We launched the London Electric Bike Company. And I started selling bikes whilst running a publishing company with, with one magazine. Again, huge learning experience, knowing nothing about this, the bicycling and cycling market. When I'd started it, there was one other shop up the road uh, that sold another brand, and they weren't very happy that we were there. But we were... We were selling a completely different range of bikes anyway. And, of course, you've got Sigma around the corner, and they didn't sell electric bikes. But no no one really sold them, and uh, there's a good reason why they didn't sell them because uh, they broke down quite a bit. Again, back to retail, what I had forgot was that you were tied to a, a premises. You couldn't couldn't take a day off, you, or I can't be bothered to go in today. It, you had to be there. 
we hadn't really set it up quite right. I think we were too early because a lot of people didn't know what e-bikes were about. Mm. So loads of people walk in and just want to try them. Uh, to the point, I'd, well, I think a couple went out on two and they disappeared for the day. They went around Bushy Park. They came back covered in mud. And I remember thinking, no, I'm not doing this right. And they didn't buy one either, which was a bit, a bit annoying. So I had to change the whole process that. But I did that for three years. And I'd always said to Dave at uh, Dave Elderfield that I'd give it the three years commitment and we'll see where we are. But I think towards the end of the second year, beginning of the third year, running it, 2015, I thought this is not for me. It's just not working out for me. I'm not enjoying it. And I think if you don't enjoy something, you really do need to step away. But I did give them my all. I did try. But it was very labour intensive. You had to spend a lot of time with people to convert to sale. It was really, really hard work. And the margins were okay, but it was very, very difficult because it, you had the cycling brigade that didn't want to be seen anywhere near an e-bike they thought they were the the devil's spawn and now people that come in that you know really had a, they had trouble walking let alone riding a bike they thought this would give them the freedom and it was quite hard when you had to sell someone particularly an elderly person that look i don't think this is for you you know and you mm. can end up really calling yourself some serious issues so it, yeah it was an interesting time and i'm glad i did it but at the same time didn't really work out sadly in the meantime, in the background, the publishing company I, I started in 2013, Silverback Publishing, we'd started to take on a couple more titles. We acquired them and I took on Retro Fold. And then um, a music magazine called Shindig came along. And the guys are brilliant, love them to bits, John and Andy. It's a really psychedelic, hippie, it's got a vibe to it, but it's got a really massive following i mean uh, paul weller's a big fan of shindig he contributed to all to it he's been interviewed several times obviously you know really sort of champions us and we're kind of like a an underground mojo record collector type tile but it, it, it's very successful worldwide and really grown over the last few years when i first took it on it was like a, a quarterly and it's now a monthly magazine and uh, yeah love working with them brilliant and then we had a another magazine called uk rock and roll which we took on ball which is covers the UK rock and roll scene, obviously. That's quite underground as well. Kit Car, unfortunately, that, that scene died, so I'd stopped publishing that in 2016. But we had Retro Ford, uh, which is obviously the classic car, Ford scene, Capris, Cortinas. And that's still very vibrant, very strong title. And then Out of the Blue, Blocks came along, which is a Lego magazine for Lego enthusiasts. And, and who doesn't love Lego? It's really cool to work on. And Lego themselves are brilliant to work with. I mean, they're churning out set after set and roll forward. Here we are still running a very, I call it successful business. Out of nothing, really. So, yeah, it's uh, it's good fun. I hadn't realised that this AFOL, adult fan of Lego, was a big thing. It's huge. And that's what Blocks, presumably, that's who Blocks is aimed at. It, it is. I mean, it's aimed at that real hardcore enthusiast, and there are plenty of them out there. I didn't realise how big the market was. It kind of touches and tries to entertain them. Is that the right word? But, yeah, tries to cover a material we think they'd like, and we have a lot of F FOLs involved with the magazine. I mean, obviously, the editor himself, I guess, would class himself as an FOL, and um, Graham is a really lovely guy, big Lego enthusiast, uh, really knows his stuff. And then we've got a number of contributors at work on the magazine. Again, I mean, I'm really lucky. The magazines, what, one thing I've learned about publishing is you can have a brilliant title, but it's nothing without the people that contribute. It's a bit like your podcast, you know, without 
you running in, or I'd like to think people are interesting. I'm talking about myself here, but <laughs> you, without good, good content, you don't have anything. And that's so very true with the magazine industry. And I'm always amazed that all publishers worry more about what the magazine looks like. What the, I mean, that is important, the design and stuff, and the title is important. But if you don't have great content, you can't sell it. And I'm really lucky to have around me the teams and all four titles. And yeah, the Blocks magazine is is just phenomenal. I mean, it's it's so big. Lego just seem to be on this mission to create set after set after set, and they don't seem to be failing anywhere. They just seem to be the growth for Lego is huge to the point you know they're involved with movies now, TV series, games. I mean, it, it's everywhere you look. I think the great thing about Lego is it, it's quite a cute brand. It's harmless. It's not. If anything, it brings a smile to your face. It can't help but smile. And I think for the older generation, people like myself and even older than me, always reminds you of your childhood. For most people, that's quite a nice thing, isn't it? Yeah, so they haven't lost their, their, their roots. But the, the magazine, we, we cover all sorts. We also try to make it easy. So if, if you're not a hardcore enthusiast, you can still pick the magazine up and learn something from it. So we cover the history of, of Lego. We talk about artists that are doing things with Lego. We cover all sorts, really. Also, we do set reviews, what's coming out, talk about... The people, funny enough, the people that are actually involved in Lego, the designers themselves, we interview those. So we go behind the scenes, and we're lucky there. We've got, um, we're recognised by Lego as one of their brand ambassadors. They're kind of like their news networks, and so we get privy access to quite a lot of stuff that's going on, which is nice. Nossie helps the magazine, so I'm very lucky. I do count myself as a very lucky person to be running a business. One I love doing i don't call it a business it's, it's a job it's a it's not even a job it's a vocation it's something i really like doing and look forward to every day as it's moments don't get me wrong what's intriguing me about this is that the the story that i've been told or i've heard or picked up somewhere is that print is dead it's all digital newspaper readerships uh, or physical newspaper readerships are falling like a stone yeah people are trying to launch new magazines they're just going and yet, that's the exact opposite of the story that you've been telling me. What's going on there? I don't think I've done anything clever, if I'm honest. So print has clearly had a massive knock from the internet. I and mean, the internet exploded pretty much 20-odd years ago, roughly. Mm. And I remember working for the previous publishing companies I worked for, the amount of research that went into it, digital, oh, we've got to find a way of getting our content online. And a lot of them just jumped on it, not realising what to do. And also, they stopped really investing in print. They almost went, oh, print, it's a bad word. And even though that, that is their main income, it almost surprised me. From my opinion, and this is my opinion, obviously, one thing I'll always say to people, well, if print's no longer viable, why are there so many... PC, computer magazines, IT magazines, print's still important. It's still a great way to digest content, good content. What I've seen happen, and particularly speaking to other publishers who've also had success, we've seen what you've got is snippets of information, like most news is it's kind of small, it's snippets, and that's what most papers are. They're kind of like they're headline, big headlines, very brief description of what's going on, and you can digest that quite easily on a phone or an iPad or a computer. For most people, a phone, there's a lot going on on that screen. You're getting a text from your mum, like I did this morning. Morning, mum. You know, you'll have an email coming in, then there'll be a phone call. 
there's a reminder from eBay, your, your bid's about to end, you know. So mm. you're getting constantly bombarded on your phone screen or your iPad or, or whatever tablet you use. And to digest a really in-depth article, it's almost impossible. One, the screen's too small, but also you're constantly being distracted by other things. For most people, a computer screen, like I've got in front of me, and I guess you have as well, is a workplace. So it's not really a place to sit and read an article. And this is where print comes into play. A magazine is so much more tangible. You you give it to someone or you pick it up, and you've got that one-on-one relationship straight away. The minute you sit down with it with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, you've got this printed publication in front of you. And other than the doorbell going or your phone <laughs> ringing you, but there's nothing that pops up in the magazine to distract you. It's like mm. one-on-one. I think what's happened is, I know from our readers, strange enough, particularly from Blocks, which is a, a bit of a younger generation of reader, who I would have thought we wouldn't capture anymore, because as you say, there are so many Lego sites out there. It's, it's incredible, like enthusiast sites. What are we talking when you say younger generation? What, what sort of age? Like 12 years old to sort of oh, right. you know, mid-20s. I thought you were going to say 30s and 40s. No, no, no. It's sort of 12 year old to sort of like mid 20s, yeah, to 30. But okay, definitely that generation have never, never not known the internet to be around. My son and daughter just have never not known the internet. Mm, it's always yeah, yeah. been there, you know. And it's very strange. It's really hard to get my head around that sometimes. So for them to be buying magazines, you know, like Blocks, for instance, is quite. It's quite a positive thing for me, obviously for as a publisher, but it's positive for the publishing industry. So good content in print still sells. Now, strange enough, we do actually have free digital platforms where the magazines are available to read, Pocket Mags, Exact Editions, and uh, Readly, and they work quite well. We, we do get a great return from those, but they, they come nowhere near the print sales. And I think the other thing is we are a hobby consumer title publishing company, and I think when it comes to hobbies, people want to get away from work. They want to turn to, you know, their hobbies. They will focus on that. So I think print, in conjunction with digital online environments, has a place still. Print's still very important. You know, the local restaurants still print their menus out. You can have a lot of stuff online, but it's not always the best way to absorb it. That's kind of what I'm trying to get to. And mm. I think that's where print becomes still quite viable. And inv- invariably, they complement each other quite well. But print, for very interesting, in-depth articles, still still wins, in, in my opinion. And, and not just my opinion, but, I mean, you look at Waterstones earlier this year, with champion record sales on books because of the lockdown, obviously. Although they were bought online, the irony of it, all the sales were online, books were sold, I think they had like a 100% increase in one month of book sales online in, in June or July last year, I think it was. But yeah, so print's still very, very viable and it still has a future. That's really interesting. Like I say, very different story from the one that you hear in the newspapers, which maybe suggests that the newspapers don't have great content, but who am I, who am <laughs> I to suggest that? I think the problem you've had with papers, that the main tabloids, is the power they've enjoyed. It basically... For many decades now, as long as I can remember, even when I was younger, you know, if the sun said jump, you'd jump. It, the whole mm. world next day would jump. Uh, and that's, I don't think that's no longer the case. I think people are quite savvy nowadays. I'd like to think so anyway. I mean, okay, there's some theorists out there that you know, don't believe in this or don't believe in that. But in general, people can go and research a lot of stuff online that is legit. And 
there's a lot more common sense now. You know, just because I don't know the Daily Mail says don't vote for this person, vote that doesn't. doesn't I don't think that works anymore. Um, I don't think the. I think the, the tabloids have realised they don't hold that sort of power over the the people. You know, that's a very different type of print compared to consumer titles, which generally are hobby led. And, and as I said, the guys that write the content for my magazines are actually enthusiasts first. It's their, they're writing about their own interests. That's what they're doing. And, and that sells because you're, you're talking to like-minded people. I've been thinking about, just as you've been talking about, some of the themes that have come up because you've essentially moved from um, being a welder to a plumber. <laughs> Training welder. <laughs> <laughs> a trainee welder, I do apologise. Into retail, into recruitment back into retail then into publishing you're kind of pinged around a lot so in terms of the subject of this podcast is serendipity a a lot of people there's a moment of serendipity where their career is kind of bundling forwards and then suddenly takes a very sharp turn whereas it feels like yours has taken lots of little turns Uh, around all over the place and the, the sense I got was that you've really made your serendipity moments. Even when you're talking about, you know, the guy who rang you up about the e-bikes, etc. But that's because you've put the time in to create a relationship with him. And in fact, it came from, it was the guy that you kind of stood up to and said, I don't think you're doing this right. And, right. His, yeah. and so created that moment of serendipity, if you like. Is that how it's felt to you, that being something that you've done or that this stuff has kind of appeared from left field? Now you say that, yes, but not at the time. I've never recognised myself as being smart or clever or doing anything else other than just going out there and making friends. For me, life is about having a laugh, and it still is. And I know it sounds so unprofessional, I know, but my glass is always half full, never half empty is, is kind of how I approach life, trying to be positive. Don't wake up and think, who can I piss off today? That's not me I think what I recognised today, fun enough, was that actually I've networked without even realising I'm networking. I think a long, long time ago, there was a guy called Tony Tobias at Link House when I first started in publishing, who I absolutely, to this day, still admire. He's, he's a, an energy beyond anyone I've ever met. He'd roll in when he wanted to. He worked on a motorsport engineering um, magazine, and he was the advertising guy, and he'd come in at 6 p.m., to work and I, I just admired his enthusiasm he was a unique character it dawned on me that people bought from tony tobias they didn't buy because of the magazine they didn't buy because of the publishing company and funny enough he now runs autosport engineering at the nec and they call it the tony tobias show this big hall and everyone knows him everyone in the martin everyone in motorsport knows tony tobias there isn't one person that doesn't if you if you don't then you're not in motorsport but he's such a really decent nice guy he's so down to earth and he's, you know, it's weird. He seems to muck about all the time. He's never serious. If he ever hears this, he'd probably kick me for saying this. But he, you know, he's like a big kid. But he's he's charming and he listens to people and he tries to go out his way to help people. And I never get him saying to me, never burn any bridges. Don't ever, whatever you do in life, just make friends with people. Just stay, like, don't try and sell to people. Just, be, like, listen to them. And if you've got something to offer, then offer it. But don't force people to do things they don't want to do because they won't come back or they won't remember you. And I, I don't think I did that on purpose, but I think you're right. I love that um, comment you just made is that 
I've made these pivotal decisions in my life. Actually, I didn't realize I made them, if that, if that makes mm. sense. I never knew me staying up to Dave all those years ago. It just, to me at the time, seemed wrong. It's like, this is why it's not working. It's almost like common sense. And roll forward, and fun enough, I was on the phone to him the other day, and he's helped my daughter's off to Southampton, and he was trying to help with stuff about, because his daughter and son had gone there advising me you know and it's just stuff like that you know and i don't i don't see him as someone that i work for or work with or he's a client he's just a guy i can speak to who's very successful and i think as you get older in life you start to say no a lot more to stuff you can kind of afford to do that but also you start to gravitate around people that you want to be around with. I think people enrich people without even realising they're enriching people, and it's, it's not like you're trying to take something away from them. I'm sounding quite quaint now, and I know. But it's so true. I, I genuinely believe that you can have a better life if you get the right people around you. Yeah, maybe I've, as you say, that that is the moment I kind of, I've just started to realise I've actually done a lot of networking without even realising I'm networking. So I don't think there's any rule book that says you can't, have fun and still do your job. I agree with that. I, I think it's weird. I think in the UK, I'm not, I can't speak for many other countries. I've got I've got family in the US, and um, the US, although, although we always think of them as being really like hard workers, long hours, and that's there is still a case of that. You know, you've got to be a career animal. They seem to have a lot more fun than we do in the corporate environment. My my sister in law works over there, and and she works hard. She's done very really, really really well for herself. I still sense that they get a lot more autonomy, they're a lot more casual. And what I do love about Americans, I don't know if you've ever dealt with them, but they're open to any idea. I mean, they're really happy to listen to you. Here, we just seem like no one wants to... I mean, it's changing, but here we, we're kind of like Victorian in our approach when it comes to <laughs> running a business. My son's going to school this morning and he's in the last year of his junior school and they have to wear ties and shirts now and they do make me laugh because it looks like a little mini businessman <laughs> but i'm thinking why does he need to like last year he's wearing a polo shirt which is far more comfortable and now he's got to put this damn tie on it's like it, i don't know i don't get that anymore i don't think you need to be dressed in, in a certain way you don't have to just do your hours at work to be productive anymore and i would like to think that this pandemic has proven that although you know, listen to some business owners. They're like, no, everyone must come back to the office. People aren't productive mm. at home. I don't believe that. I don't know about you, but the amount of uh, meetings I used to go to that were totally irrelevant to my job, well, I'm wasting so much time here. And, you know, then you get, uh, I say Doris, it could have been anyone, but they come up to my desk and you've got 20 minutes of idle chat there. I don't get any of those distractions at home. All right, I'll put the washing on. I might have to feed the cats, take my son to school. But also the quality of life has got to be just as important as having a good job, right? And that, that, there is a balance there. It can be done. I Trust me, I'm doing it. I've been doing it for the last nearly 20 years. You know, you, I can, you can work from home. And we are a successful company. We are growing year on year. And, it, and it's worth That's not just me, my business partner, Andy Christman. Massive thanks to him for getting involved all those years ago you know we love working together i don't know about you but i couldn't go back to that environment i'm not good at taking orders anyway but also i don't think it's necessary if i could give anyone and i always say this when someone talks about work what do you reckon i always say to everyone try and work for yourself just have a go find something you really love doing and have a go at it be brave don't be scared you know what's the worst that can happen it doesn't succeed so what at least you can turn around and say you know what I had a dig at it. I had a go. Mm. You never, you just never know. And I think 
you've got to have a go at stuff because you just don't know. Sometimes it'll work out and sometimes it doesn't. And um, it's not easy for everyone. I know not everyone's the same and some people can't do that. They want the security of a paid paid job and all the benefits that come with that. I get that, but I couldn't work in an office anymore. I couldn't work for someone else, if I'm honest. I'm getting the sense of what you think of as success here, which is which is really nice. I was thinking about, in particular, the e-bikes thing. So there's quite a famous phrase. It's like something to do with an idea whose time has come. And it was like you were maybe five years too early. Yeah. Maybe not we even were. five years. How does that feel, though? Because, you know, you put three years into that. Hard work. It didn't work out for you. And now e-bikes, they're a big yeah, thing. They're, they're taking off. Well, what do I get out of it? I made a lot of friends in Hampton. I found this beautiful area that I really fell in love with without that access and meeting these people. But I met some great guys, you know, and the business itself, yeah, it, it didn't work. But I'm not losing sleep over that. Again, I was taught a long time ago, particularly in sales, sales is always about get something from your meeting with someone. Even if that's a commitment to phone back in six months' time, that is a success of mm. a call a cold call is you literally call someone for the first time try and get some some something from it whether that be a call in a year's time whether that oh okay i know that you, you're going to launch whatever you're selling to try and sell to this person but get something from them and it doesn't have to be a sale it can be anything and so i look at life like that so all right the e-bike business didn't work but i got a lot more from it and that is great friendship good mates Again, I learned a lot about cycling, even though I'm not a cyclist. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about not what to do when it comes to running an e-bike business. <laughs> I totally enjoyed my time. I did enjoy it. There were tough days, but I definitely enjoyed it. I don't see it as a negative. I don't. I don't hmm. lose sleep over it. No, oh, that's really good. How would you define success then? Because I've I've learned a lot from this conversation, and it's really important to me because I'm right at the point now where I'm thinking: Do I become self-employed? Do I not? Do I go back to the office? So listening to you has been really inspiring for me, Tom. Thank you. I don't think <laughs> I am, but um, I, hope, I hope you find whatever you need. thing is, really got to bear in mind, whatever suits one person, as you know, doesn't suit someone else. And of course. The one thing I do wish is that I'd gone into business for myself a lot, lot younger, a lot younger. So I'd have a lot more energy and enthusiasm. And I'm 53, I can't remember what I'm 53. 53 this year. <laughs> All right, I'm not an old man, old, old man, but, you know, I clearly had a lot more energy when I was in my 20s. I wish I had that kind of now to do something then. Now, what that was, I don't know, but I generally believe that you should always have a crack yourself. And I think, actually, nowadays, there's far more opportunity and support and help to business than ever before. Mm. You know, when I go back 30 years, there was nothing like that. There were no grants around, really. Crikey, trying to get a business loan from a bank was almost impossible you know, a lot of it was hand-me-downs. People that used to work for themselves tended to be working for their, their dad or, you know, someone in the family that meant, oh, we've already done this, here you go. Launching a new business is almost unheard of. So uh, to do it now is, yeah, I think it's a, you're in a real prime time to be doing it, particularly from, from a, a support point of view. What what do you think success is? It, it means so much to so many people. For me, I think it's being able to run a business that suits me. And what I mean by that is I've got to a point in my life, and I thought about this about 10, maybe 15 years ago, I want to do something, one, that I enjoy, two, that covers my bills and pays the mortgage, et cetera, but also gives me full autonomy to do what I want. So if I'm going to go gym on a Tuesday or Thursday at 
one o'clock in the afternoon or bob along to see my mate Wayne in the coffee shop. I can do that whenever I want. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. There are times when I need to be here to do stuff. But mm. in general, I think that's success. I don't think for some people that might be a Ferrari or owning a yacht, but I don't need them. I don't know what I'd do with one anyway. But um, money's important, but it's not the be all and end all. And I think what I've realized is um, I've been around to see my children grow up, which is lovely. I'm here for them if they come home from school, you know, if they want to run into the shops or. I don't know, my son wants to go to the park, we can do that. I think that's success. I think, And silly little things as well. Um, being able to help other people, give them a role within your own business, or, I don't know, put your hand in your pocket and help someone out a little bit. I mean, even getting like a complete stranger a, a beer at the bar. That, to me, is success, because I can afford to do that. So building up a business that enables me to kind of really run the life that I want to lead and work because I want to, not because I have to. I think that is, to me, that is success. That sums it up for me. Fair enough. Brilliant. It's been a massive pleasure talking to you. You really made me reflect on um, all these years I've been working. I thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to my guest Tom Saunders for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks also to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork, to Anna Gunn, as ever, for her amazing editing support, to Acast for hosting, and of course, to you for listening. Remember, if you think you can add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, find me on LinkedIn, or look me up on Twitter using the handle at soupserendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.